all that God has been doing in our church this past year and where he's leading us in the future. Uh, and to kind of think towards the future a little bit, I wanted us to do a, I really felt led to walk through just a quick three-week little mini-series on leadership. Right, one of the things we shared last week was how we plan to grow out our discipleship in the way that we structure our leadership in the church, but hopefully that kind of spills over into how we lead and live out our own lives. Uh, and I shared how we're going to kind of flesh out the leadership team to add elders and deacons uh, to our already existing, you know, essentially ministry leaders and trustees that we've already got, kind of each with their own gifts and callings to work together to guide our heartbeat in discipleship. Uh, but church, before we dive into like what those two things are, elders and deacons, which we're going to do in the next two weeks, I really had it on my heart to say we, we need to be on the same page as far as what are we after when we think about church leadership, right? If you look at different churches all over the world, there's a lot of different ways that leadership is structured. Okay, so when we talk about elders and we talk about deacons, it's less of a, you know, there's a certain type of church that does this, so we want to be more like them, but it's so we're trying to live out what we see in Scripture. But it looks different across different cultures and different contexts. So really, before we start to dive into what specifically are we going to do here, we have to kind of ask, what are we after in terms of leadership? Right? We just spent a whole year in Exodus seeing what does it mean to be the people of God. And now that we kind of have an understanding of what that looks like, we can kind of say, then how do we lead that, right? How do we lead our church and lead ourselves in a way that makes that happen? And the reason we have to ask this question, what does leadership look like in God's kingdom in order for that to happen? Uh, I mean, it's probably a bunch of different answers. But the, the two big ones for me why we need this is first, it helps hold our leadership accountable, Right? If we know where we're trying to go and what leadership in God's kingdom looks like, then we can actually hold leadership accountable to make sure those things happen. I mean, it's, if you study, and this is not just true for churches, but if you look at any business, once the leadership loses sight of what the leadership is supposed to do, then the leadership doesn't lead that vision anymore. Okay? So kind of understanding what are we accountable to do? But also it helps communicate to other people who are we trying to be, right? If you look at a way a business is set up, just in a big picture scheme, you've got you know, chiefs of different divisions, right? Like there's a CFO, a CEO, a COO, all those acronyms with C's and O's in them. And like you look at the leadership positions and you say, you know, like they're there to make sure things happen. And they've got teams and people under them to make sure things happen. Uh, we kind of treat that similarly in the church to some extent in you know, larger churches with larger staffs. You've got like a children's pastor and a youth pastor. And the, the world kind of looks at that and says, well, you're there to like make those ministries, make those programs happen. And you say, well, from an organizational standpoint, maybe, but there's actually something deeper that's going on. And what we want is in our leadership structure to say, hey, if we've seen God call us to be a people in his image, in his likeness, then everything we do to include the way that we lead and shepherd at the church and the way we lead and shepherd our own personal lives has to also reflect this. And I'll circle back around to this, but I'm not suggesting that we haven't done that. And that's why we need to make a change. 
It's not that at all. In fact, it's really just coming from a place of saying, I have seen us do this, and I just want this to be baked into, kind of bred into the foundation of New River Fellowship moving forward so that it doesn't happen by accident or happen only depending upon who's in leadership, but just say, no, this is what we're after in all things. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And I thought this was a really interesting passage to circle back to because it does, the, the famous verse is chapter 4, verse 12, that says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You know, that that's kind of like what we see we're supposed to do in the church. But I thought it was, it was unique that that verse comes in context when we studied Ephesians in our value series last year of the value of transformational unity in Christ. That something about the way that we would even lead others is going to project and protect this unity that we have in Christ. So it's a cool context to say, well, this is not just for the church, but this is for the, the life of every single believer. So church, hear me on this this morning. When we're reading this, there's going to be applications we can make to church leadership, for sure. But don't, don't tune me out if you're saying, well, I'm not a leader, and I don't think I'm going to be a leader, so this doesn't apply to me. Because really, Paul is not speaking specifically to church leaders. He's speaking to the whole church in general. So as Paul is sharing this heart for God to the entire church, we're going we're gonna to pull from it some things we can apply to leadership. But man, this, this, is, for, this is for all of us. So we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 16 today. Paul begins, I therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Speaking of Christ. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, none of this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we're grateful here to be in your word and to just be seeing your heart for your people. Lord, it, you know, last week we got to celebrate all that you've been done, doing in the life of this, this church family, God. All that you have been leading us to do, all that you've been teaching us, all that you've been revealing about yourself to us. So Lord, as we keep going in your word, Father, may, may all the echoes of the stuff that we've seen just keep coming back, God. That we would, we would keep being brought back to that point of saying, yes, God, we see you, 
We hear you. We want this. Father, may you open our hearts and ears to understand Ephesians 4 as Paul's writing today. In your name we pray. Amen. So Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay? Another way you could think about this is saying, what, you know, a manner worthy of the life of Christ. You know, the name of Christ, the image of God. What, so what does this life look like? And he starts kind of by showing how if we're living in God's kingdom, but for us as we're thinking about leadership, how leadership in God's kingdom calls us to live out God's heart. The very first thing Paul does, and we, we know Paul at this point is a fairly intentional guy, so he's not doing things by accident. He starts when he says, so what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? He starts with a couple heart issues. He starts with verse 2 saying, you need to walk with all humility, all gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in, in love. And he continues in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. So we've got humility, gentleness, patience, love, and, and what I kind of call peacemaking, right? That, that you're looking to live at peace. You're striving for peace, for unity in the spirit with those around you. And Paul kind of has this, this wonderful logical flow to the way that he's writing that the engineer in me greatly appreciates. Because Paul says, this is what this looks like. And then the question you go is, okay, but why that, Paul? Like, of anything, why those things? And he goes there in verse 4. Verses 4 through 10, he kind of says, look, here's why these things are so vital to you. He says, because you've all foundationally been called to do this. In fact, you've not only been called to do this, but you and all these other believers, these brothers and sisters in Christ, you're actually able to do this together. He says, we share one body. Right? Joel shared last week about how the church is identified as the bride, right? a physical body of Christ. And Paul says, look, you're all in the same body. If you're in Christ, you're part of that body. So you're all, you're all together in this. We belong to the body. Verse 4 also says one spirit. We receive the same spirit, God's spirit, as the sign and seal of our reconciliation to God. He says you've been called to the same hope. That belongs to your call under one Lord, right? We proclaim the same Lord, God's Son, Jesus Christ, is the King over our hearts and lives. He says you have the same faith that all those who call in the name of Jesus Christ, what, what we would, you're probably more familiar hearing you confess him as Lord and Savior is probably the language that we've usually used, is if we do this, we receive God's reconciliation, We've, we share the same baptism, verse 5, the same, you know, passing through from death to life in, in reference of what Christ has done in our lives. Verse 6, we're, we have the same God, right? We've, we've been given the same image of the same God who created us in creation. And 7 through 10 says we've also been given the same grace, right? All of this takes place because of the cross of Christ. So Paul says, take on humility, gentleness, love, patience, you know, all these things, peacemaking, because y'all are pretty similar. He says, you might look at one another in your, your church family, Ephesus, and you may see people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, physically from different places around the world. You know, you're doing different jobs. You, you see the differences. But Paul says, but if you are in Christ, look at all this stuff that you actually have 
in common. And if you're living with that mentality of in Christ, I have these things, Paul says, then this is the heart that you bubble up to have. Now, we're going we're gonna to practice something really quick together, okay? Because when we read Paul, and notice I've already kind of spoiled it by saying that this is something that we are all called to do. But when we read Paul in the New Testament, our tendency is to say, man, whatever Paul says, you know, it's, you, you send it to the same church, the same situation. You kind of make a big universal application of whatever Paul is saying. Now, I'm not saying don't do that, but I am saying Paul writes his letters to specific churches, specific people groups, and specific time period. So before we just jump in and say, okay, then, then what Paul is saying is something for all believers everywhere, for all of time need to do. What we have to do if we're going to be really good Bible, Bible readers is say, okay, do I hear that in some of the other places that Paul has already written about? Right? Is, is Paul saying this is something the church of Ephesus needs to do and there's a bigger picture we can glean from this? Or is Paul saying, no, this is for all believers all time? Now, I've, again, I've already kind of spoiled the answer, but, but listen to what Paul writes elsewhere in some of his other letters. He writes in Galatians 5, through 23. This is one that you may actually be a little bit more familiar with. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Right? So do you hear kind of a similar manner to what Paul said? I mean, love is in there. Peace, faithfulness, we're called to the same hope. Patience, self-control, this eager to maintain, like I'm going to have to work at this, right? Some of the same things are in there. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, this is verse 12, and I think I cut it off at like verse 15. Paul writes, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. A similar list, right? We see compassion is in common, humility. He literally calls out gentleness, patience, Christ's peace ruling, okay? Same thing. Philippians 2, 1 through 3. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Be of the same mind, there's your peace. Be of the same love, love. Uh, be of one accord, your unity, humility, gentleness, same list. One more. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-14. Paul says, We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Right? This is an easy one for us to practice, which is why I wanted us to practice with this today. But when we read through Paul's letters... Before we just jump to saying, oh yeah, let's, let's just all do this all the time in all things. 
make sure that that is actually what Paul's intending. And here, very clearly, church, it looks like Paul's not just writing something. He's saying, hey, church of Ephesus, I want you to have a patient, humble, gentle, loving, you know, self-controlled, uh, peacemaking heart. He kind of seems to say, well, this is, you know, all these different churches in these different contexts with these different peoples. Paul says this is essentially the same thing. Okay, so that's that's a fun exercise that we get to do, church, when we, when we learn to read the New Testament epistles. But yes, what Paul is after in the heart of all believers should be the same thing we're after in our leadership, that we're looking to lead others into the heart of God. And so that, that makes me then go, okay, then for me, are these the characteristics that I look for in the leaders I want to follow? Are these the characteristics that I want grown in me when I think about leading church? Do we aim for or do we follow those who are humble, gentle, patient, loving, peacemakers? And that was convicting for me this week because when I look at the way other areas in our world put forth what's valuable in leadership, those are not typically on the top 10 lists of qualities that you want to see in a leader. But yet here's Paul saying that this is not only just a good thing for leadership, but this is walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It made me think back to Exodus to say, okay, do I see something similar or something different going on in leadership? And I realized in Exodus... We saw attempts at different hearts for leadership that God kind of kept striking down immediately. In Exodus 18, right, this is one I've talked a little bit about because it's, it's one that I've, it's just fascinated me. Sometimes things just are interesting. You just kind of keep coming back to it. But in Exodus 18, you see Moses is called out by Jethro for trying to live out this leadership model that's see, seeking to like get all the people to him so that he can teach them the law of God and make them do the right thing, right? That doesn't sound inherently bad to us, but we already talked about this two weeks ago, that, that Paul or Jethro tells Moses, what you're doing is against the image of God, right? It's not good. It's not, and good there being that same word when God makes creation, tov. It's not tov. It's not good. In Exodus 32, you see Aaron is leading the people to make golden calves, Right? And if you go back and read, they, they say to Aaron they want the calves to represent a God to go before them. If you were to put some modern day language into that, you would say, we want a God who's going to go stand up for us. Who's going to establish you know, this respect for us amongst the other peoples. They wanted somebody, I mean, a... a trying to think of a, a better analogy would essentially be like you're, you're rooting for your favorite sports team. Let's take tech football, for example. You want tech football to be good because as a tech fan, it, you feel it doesn't look good on you when tech is not doing well. Okay? I don't know if you're like me, but pretty much every conversation I have regarding college football right now is just give it three years. Just, just give it a couple years. Let's see what pride does. You're like, but there's a small part of me that says, man, if tech football doesn't look good and I root for them then, and they don't look good, then I don't look good because I'm choosing 
true for them, right? It's, it's kind of the same, it's a little, it's not to the same degree, but it's the same picture of what Israel was doing in Exodus. They were saying, we want something powerful, something respectful to go, to go before us so that we can go be as cocky and confident as the University of Alabama football fans are, why we all cheered when Tennessee, sorry, I'm talking too much about football here. But we get, we get the picture of what's going on, right? We want something confident to go before us, to lead us. This is what Israel was looking for. And God didn't, didn't really like it so much. In fact, in Exodus 33, he tells Moses, well, in chapter 32, he tells Moses, he says, you go down to your people. Oops. They don't sound like God's people anymore. He says, you go tell your people what they've done. And in chapter 33, he says, you tell them to go on ahead to that promised land of theirs, but I'm not going with them. That at that point, that what they're looking for in leadership and in life is actually not God at all. It's just kind of putting God's name on that power, production, self-narrative that we've been seeing so much about. So it, it matters for us in leadership, if that this, the heart of God, is what we're actually seeking to grow in us and to lead others in doing. And I, I love, church, how Paul, as he describes what we ought to do, as he says, look, this is what life, that is a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He, he talks about heart issues. He doesn't actually describe any actions. Now, I would never step in the place of, of putting words in Paul's mouth of saying that the service piece is not important. Okay, I think if we look at the body of Paul's work, we would agree. Paul doesn't ever say that. But what he is saying here seems to echo one of, again, another fascinating passage when Jesus is saying to people around him, he says, you know, not all of those who say to me, Lord, Lord, are going to enter into my kingdom. Jesus says, there'll be those who come and say, God, look at all these amazing things that we've done in your name. Look at all the things we tried to do for you. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And Paul kind of fleshes this out to say here, look, service is not always considered an indicator of spirit-filledness. The reverse of that could be considered true. If I'm filled with the spirit, I'm going to be serving. This is what Joel shared about in his testimony last week. And boy, serving in the church, serving in our faith, as Joel mentioned, man, that, that is the investment that we want to make with our lives. But flip it around. Service is not always, not always, considered an indicator of spirit-filledness. In all of those letters that we read as to what the heart of God looks like, Paul did not put service in all of them. In fact, they are all seem to be heart issues. And if you look at the broader context of the letters, of course, Paul goes on to say, with this heart, here's what you go do with it. But Paul always starts with the heart. It's the heart. And, and I love that, church, because look, when God says through Paul to us, what is a manner worthy of the calling, and it's the heart, what God is saying to us is there is nothing that you can do that's going to prove your worth, or your value to me. There is nothing that you are going to do to prove yourself worthy of my name. And I hope that that's freeing for you today, because that was very freeing for me. Because we get caught up in the, the power of production self, I have to do this. And God says, it, it is not, I'm not looking for you to prove 
that you're worthy of my name. He says, but if you can learn to live out my heart that I am pouring into you by my spirit, now we've got something. So in our leadership church, if we're going to look at how we structure leadership and what are we actually leading others to do, it has to start with leading ourselves and others to be after the heart of God. Now, once we have that heart in place, now Paul moves then in verses 11 through 16 to say, what do we do with this? Just like he does in his other letters. So now we can look at the doing piece. So leadership in God's kingdom, it leads us to be after the heart of God so that we lead others to bear his image. The second piece. Verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, so all these different leadership positions, which you know, he talks about in his other letters about who they are and what they do. All these leaders he gives to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is, that is a wonderful phrase that we love to give to ministers, but it still kind of leaves you with the question, what is the work of ministry, Paul? And again, Paul's got the good logic. He says, okay, here's what the work of ministry is, for building up the body of Christ. So how do we know if we're doing this well? Thank you, Paul. This is where he goes in verse 13. He gives a couple over 13, 14, and 15. He gives a couple different ways we can tell if we're doing this well. Verse 13, he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, I do want to pause really quickly on the phrase mature manhood before we throw our own ideas on there. That Greek phrase is, is two words. It's andratelion, and it just means perfect or complete man. Not biological man, but like humanity. So, so you could read this, Paul saying, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to the complete being, right? The fullness of who God has made you to be to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? So Paul's saying, look, you can tell if you're building up the body by saying, are you actually leading people to be growing in the faith so that their lives are starting to look like Christ? If we're seeing that happen, we're doing great in our leadership. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul's not literally uh, devaluing children here, but one of the common New Testament images is to show maturity in terms of age, right? That, that elders kind of gives the picture of you know, people who are further along, who are spiritually mature, to lead the children less mature in the faith, right? So this is not, not an age thing so much as a maturity thing. So Paul says, look, if we're going to be leading well, then we should see people maturing so that they're not being, I love this phrase, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness. Really what he's practically saying is, church, in life you're going to go through a lot of circumstances. There's going to be a lot of changes in culture around you. There's going to be a lot of people that come into and out of your lives. Do we let those things diminish our humility, our gentleness, our patience, our love, our forgiveness, our kindness, our goodness, our faithfulness, our self-control? Paul's saying if we are really maturing in Christ, then kind of the whole mentality of, you know, come what may, like, whatever is going on in the world around us is actually not going to change the way that we respond, which... 
is very difficult for most people. One example personally in my life where I, I mean, this is, again, it doesn't feel like it's to the same degree, but it's, it's, a, it's a glimpse of this. One of the things we teach people to do at Blacksburg Transit when they come to drive the bus is that you have to stay four seconds back from the car in front of you. There's, there's a 30-minute long video if you want to come watch it at some point uh, that actually shows you the math to say if you stay four seconds back and you're not paying attention, your foot's not even on the brake, that as soon as you see brake lights in front of you, you will be able to stop the car at any given speed and not slam into the back of the person in front of you, at least four seconds, okay? I try that until somebody does something that irritates me, until they cut me off, until they fly around me. Every morning I drive 460, the bypass from the Franklin Street exit to the Main Street exit. And there are a ton of people. We like to get in the left lane, fly around, but then we all have to get to the right to merge to go off into the industrial park where VTTI is. So as soon as somebody cuts me off, I'm not staying back four seconds. Most people, we get right up on the bumper because we don't want anybody else cutting us in. And apparently riding up on somebody's bumper is, is the universal code of us trying to tell them what they did was wrong. Okay, so, so in my head, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the, the heart and the image I'm supposed to have, but I'm very, I'm very open to letting something tell me, Jordan, you don't have to do that anymore. When somebody does something to you, when they say something to you, when they, when they do something that you don't agree with, now you can throw all the safety stuff out the window, right? If we are maturing in our faith, Paul says, we are not going to be whatever's going on in culture, whatever doctrinal thing is coming up at the time of the day, whatever human schemes and human cunning. And there's so much of us that say, but that's not right. They shouldn't be able to do that. Shouldn't we change? Paul says, it doesn't matter. Only a child will allow the circumstances around them to dictate how they're going to respond. That sounds harsh coming from me, so thankfully Paul says that in his word. I don't, that's not me. But if we're measuring, are we maturing? Man, nothing is going to change my humility, my gentleness, my patience, my love, my forgiveness, my kindness, my goodness, my faithfulness, my self-control. That sounds like a lot of work. And church, that's what is taking place in our hearts through the Spirit. So if we can see ourselves starting to, to grow in that consistency where we're actually not allowing what's going on in the world to change how I'm responding. Now, then we can say, okay, now we're leading somewhere good. The last piece, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul says, look, if we're leading well, if we're living this out well, we're going to be growing in Christ-likeness. Okay? Very, very simply, he ends it. And he kind of circles back around to why Christ because he says in verse 16, because it's from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, Christ makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I know sometimes love as a foundation gets a bad rep. But Paul three times in these 16 verses says, no, when everything's functioning well, you should see love taking place. As you should see people growing in their love for God, growing in their love for others, manifesting itself in, in the image of Christ. 
And it, it leads me, this, this whole thing points me to one of my favorite and most butchered passages in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, that says, if I speak, this is a little rough paraphrase, but if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I have prophetic power, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I do all these things right... But if I don't have love, Paul says, I have nothing, I gain nothing, I am nothing. And I, and I say it's oft butchered because I, I realized I don't know that I've heard a sermon ever really fleshing this out unless you're at a wedding, right? Which certainly you would need this at a wedding. This is a great picture of what a married couple together is pursuing. But Paul, is, Paul would be rolling in his grave saying, I didn't just write that for the context of marriage. I wrote that for the life of every believer. That in all things, this is who God is. If we do all these things right, but our heart is not in the right place, we have nothing. We are nothing. We gain nothing. Whatever we're doing is, is nothingness. And so church, when we think about what our leadership here looks like, we're not trying to just grow abilities, gain more spiritual gifts, understand all mysteries and knowledge, have all faith, give away all we have, deliver up our bodies, right? We're not just after that. Paul doesn't say these things are bad, okay? In context of the First Corinthians letter, the very next chapter, he goes into why gifts, why you should pursue different gifts. Okay, Paul is not saying don't do these things. Just like I, I point out from Ephesians, he's not saying service is bad. But he's saying if your heart is not in the right place, and if your heart is not the heart of God in it, then it is nothing. So much of, of church leadership tends to focus around, again, just getting the right things to happen. We want the right things to happen. But foundationally, if the heart is not in the right place, then we have nothing. So this then becomes the foundation for leadership in the church. But really, just what do we want to lead out happening in our lives? We must live out God's heart so that others can learn to bear his image. As we close with this this morning, church, I, I really want to make one thing to just stand out clear to encourage you. That I, I am in no way suggesting over the next couple weeks when we talk about elders, we talk about deacons and adding to the leadership team, I am in no way suggesting that we need this because I think we're missing it, okay? I have, I have not seen us missing this, and this is why I feel burdened as your pastor to share this today, okay? It's because I've seen the opposite. I've had the joy of sitting with our leadership team for... For a while, it was every week. Then we moved to every other week. So you, you could say probably at least 25 different meetings over the span of the past year, several of which were probably closer to three hours in length. It, a lot of time, okay? A lot of time. And I've, we've gotten to, you know, see the struggles and work through things in the Word. And it's been one of my biggest joys as a pastor to just see God's heart start to just come out in that room, okay? It's, 
there's been so many meetings where, there's been far more meetings where I called Abigail afterwards and said, let me tell you all the cool stuff that just happened. Then you need to get a big bowl of ice cream ready for me when I get home, okay? Very, just so many, so many stories of how God has been at work. And my heart for you is your pastors. Look, the, the church today, New River Fellowship, uh, is a little bit bigger than it was 15 months ago, okay? We, we see God doing a work in the New River Valley. He's been leading people to come join us and to come be here, which, you know, is, is very humbling and very cool. But I want to see this be an intentional work, not an accidental work or something that we're going to kind of build into the DNA, not just hope this keeps happening because we see it happening now. Okay, that, that's where the heart behind the leadership structure comes from. So in the, the next two weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about the two specific offices that we don't have in name, but kind of are already doing with elders and deacons. So next week, we're going to talk about elders. Um, and we're going to walk through an entire book of Scripture together, which sounds daunting, but it's a short book. It's the book of Titus. Titus is Paul writing to one of his younger guys that he's mentoring who's leading a church. And Paul says, hey, now that I've left and Titus, you're kind of in charge, here's how you build out the leadership structure. Titus talks about what do elders look like. And then we're going to go to Acts the following week, and we'll look at when deacons first come on the scene. Man, what was... What was the church trying to accomplish when they brought forth deacons? So we're going to see how these offices can actually help our leadership team alongside our trustees that we'll continue to have and alongside the different leaders of specific ministries that we've had that some of you guys have been serving in for years, how all of this together is going to help us do this, right? To live out God's heart so that others learn to bear his image. And the last thing I'll share with before we close, church, is just again... Don't miss the personal call, okay? This is not just for those who want to be in church leadership. That everything we've been reading about hasn't been in context of just church leadership. Paul's saying this is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so two practical questions I would like to leave with you. The first being, is my practice of faith, me walking in this manner, is this bearing the fruit of God's heart? Because when Paul is diving into this here, going back to the heart issues, he's really just doing, reiterating what Jesus taught in John 15. When he says, abide in me and I in you. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus says, if your heart is with me and it's in the right place, we're going to bear some fruit together. So Paul just builds on this to challenge us to say, hey, look, if we're looking at the way that I respond as a Christian in my faith to different things around me, does it reflect humility? Am I willing to maybe concede an argument somewhere? Maybe I don't have to always be right because I'm not, I'm not worried about losing any earthly power. I have the power of Christ in me. What's there to lose? Am I gentle? Am I as gracious to others as God is gracious to me? I know for me that the answer there. Am I patient? Right? We really just want quick resolves because quick resolves mean we can get more things done. But God's reconciliation work takes time. And often we're not even aware half the time that he might be doing a work in somebody, not just me. 
and so it takes some time. Am I loving? Is this my attitude towards others? But church, I'd also say, is, is this our attitude towards ourselves? I know for me personally, I do tend to be one of those people that just kind of beats up on themselves when they don't do things right. And if, if Paul is saying that the heart that God has towards his creation, that he wants us to have towards his creation, is love, church, you are part of God's creation. So this is not just an external, I just love others but it does also speak to how well we take care of ourselves. Does, does my attitude, my faith, my practice of faith reflect unity? Do I focus more on the differences between myself and others? Or you know, one of our values is we value the image of God. What that practically looks like is me saying, you know what, I, I can't agree with anything that just came out of your mouth. But you bear the same image of God that I do. And because of that alone, like, I'm going to treat you with the same value and honor and dignity that I would give to myself. Right? That, is, that is not easy. But I don't think it's, it's any accident that Paul puts all of this in context of unity in Ephesians 4. So the first question, you know, how am I doing with this? And then the second, naturally being, then how am I leading others to bear the fruit of God's heart? Which for me plays out a lot in parenting. Am I just trying to get the kids to do the right thing, to get the chore done, or am I taking the time to actually help them, you know, learn to be humble and gentle and patient and loving and united in the work that they're doing? It takes a lot more time to get things done along the way with that attitude. But then you start to realize maybe getting it done is not ultimately the point of all of this. So church, as we, as we ask God to help us kind of grow this heart and say, Lord, we've seen this heart in our church this past year. We want this to be foundationally built into our leadership and our personal lives moving forwards. That leadership in God's kingdom calls us to live out God's heart so that others learn to bear his image. Let's pray together. We say, all-sufficient king, when I come into thy presence, I see the glory of thy perfections the throne of eternal and universal empire, the 10,000 times 10,000 to minister to thee. Impress my mind with the consciousness of thy greatness, not to drive me from thee, but to inspire me to approach thee, not to diminish my confidence in thee, but to lead me to admire thy great condescension. Thou hast been mindful of me and visited me, taken charge of me from birth, cared in all conditions for me, fed me at thy table, drawn the curtains of love around me, given me new mercies every morning. Lord, suffer me not to forget that I look for yet greater blessings, a hope beyond the grave, the earnest and foretastes of immortality, of holiness, of wisdom, of strength, of peace, of joy. All these thou hast provided for me in Christ. I grieve to think of how insensible I have been of thy claims of authority and the endearments of thy love. How little I have credited thy truth. How little I have trusted thy promises. How little I have obeyed thy, thy commands. How little I have improved my advantages. How little I have welcomed thy warnings. How little I have responded to thy grace. But notwithstanding my desert, I yet live. May thy goodness always lead me to repentance and thy long-suffering prove my salvation. Amen.